Hello and welcome to a special Christmas Day edition of Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Merry Christmas! Today, you find us somewhere in Northern England in 1905, sitting high above a railway line. Below is the black yawning mouth of a tunnel. At the end of a valley, there runs a great bridge with tall arches. We're waiting to wave at a green steam train, the 915 up, the one we call the Green Dragon, the one that carries an old gentleman with odd-shaped collars and a top hat that isn't exactly like other people's, who always waves back. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us for this special Christmas Day episode, like family members from far away <laughs> who we see once or twice a year, are two returning guests, Catherine Rundell and Frank Cottrell-Boyce. Hey, Merry Christmas. And uh, they both joined us in April to discuss Tristram Shandy. And it was after that digression film romp uh, that... Uh, Catherine said, oh, if you ever want me to come back on again, and I love to do the railway children, and we went, come back at Christmas. Come back immediately. So so thank you very much, Catherine. What a brilliant idea. We've been excited all year. Let me introduce and ask both our dear guests for their first festive contributions of the day. Catherine Rundell is the author of half a dozen children's books, among them Rooftoppers and The Explorer, all published by Bloomsbury and a fellow of All Souls College in Oxford, where she has just finished the book about John Donne, congratulations, that she's been writing for the last thousand, (laughs) i.e. six, years. It's called Super Infinite and Everybody Save a Book Token because it's coming out in April. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's the kind of product placement we can do on here. (laughs) Catherine, here's a cracker sound effect of pulling a cracker. (laughs) What appropriate joke has just fallen onto the table from your I apologise in advance. Which Ian Nesbitt novel features the uh, murderous destruction of five children by a killer clown? <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, it's just, I'm going to love this. It's something it's in just it, right? Five children and it. <laughs> Very good. A a polite (laughs) ripple there. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. Uh, Turning now to our other guest, the eccentric uncle slumped in the corner. Hello, Frank Cottrell Boyce. (laughs) He's an award-winning novelist and screenwriter who, as well as joining Catherine for the Shandy Fest, first appeared on Batlisted number 79 to discuss Tuve Janssen's Moomin Valley in November. His best-selling children's books include Millions, which won the 2004 Carnegie Medal, Sputnik's Guide to Life on Earth, 2016, shortlisted for the Carnegie, and most recently, Noah's Gold, all illustrated by Stephen Lenton and published by Macmillan. Frank wishes us to know that he is, quote, erudite, warm and enthusiastic. (laughs) That's so rude. (laughs) Well, you said it, Frank. Uh, And those are all qualities that make him eminently qualified to appear on this backlisted Christmas special. And also to share with us, Frank, do you have a a cheering, festive motto that's fallen out of your imaginary cracker for us today? Yes. Do you wonder who delivers Mary and Joseph's groceries to the stable? I I do. It's the little donkey. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's very good. I'm also joined today by 
the green man himself, John Mitchinson, <laughs> and our producer, Nikki Birch, who is part of the team here. We're all gathered around the Christmas table. They've also got crackers. They've also pulled their crackers. Uh, Nikki Birch, what uh, joke do you have for us? Okay, so which Christmas song is a family favourite of the railway children? Uh, <laughs> Freight Christmas. It's good, but it's not what I've got on my, t- my okay, card. Okay, <laughs> okay. It's Phyllis Navidad. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. That right, Mitchinson. I know you've prepared a, a whole side of A4 of potential Shush. candidates. I'm, I'm just going to give you one, my favourite one. Go on. Why, why, backlisted listeners, did Andy Miller give the kiss of life to an elderly male reindeer? My private life, my private life is none of your business. Go on, John. He was breathing new life into an old book. Oh, oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. Is that your best one? Yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> It's got to be crap, right? Well, that was magnificent. I, I already feel... We recorded this in July, and I already feel the, jo- <laughs> the jollity is flowing through me like heroin. It's amazing. Thank, Thank you very Andy. much. Have you got yeah, one? Come on, Andy. No, I, do, I was too busy doing the quiz. There's okay. a quiz, everybody. There's a quiz later on. That's, that's exciting. So if you hadn't already guessed, because we've already told you, so you pay attention... The old book we're coaxing fresh and festive life from today is The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt, first serialised in 1905 in the London magazine and published in book form the following year by Wells, Gardner, Darton and Co. It's remained in print ever since. The Railway Children has been adapted many times for radio and the stage and at least six times for the screen, with many, though not all, the adaptations featuring Jenny Agata. If ever a book needed no introduction, it is this one. So we're not going to give it one. I, I'm, I'm hoping every single person listening to this doesn't need spoiler warnings or <laughs> anything like that. You've had, you know, you've had 115 years and multiple Christmas TV viewings to be up to speed for this one. So it should be fine. But before we get on to the Railway Children, John, what have you been reading this Christmas? I've been reading an old favourite and an old classic. It's Hobbity Dick by the great folklorist Catherine Briggs, K.M. Briggs. Uh, It was published uh, first in 1955, and it is about a a kind of a supernatural hobgoblin figure called Hobbity Dick, who is the tutelary spirit of a house called Whidford Manor in the Cotswolds. And he is watching on glumly as a family of Puritans move in. It's set in the middle of the, or or shortly after the, the Civil War. Uh, at the time of uh, when Christmas was was under threat or even banned, and it's about his how he with his kind of band of of, of ghosts and grims and will o' the wisps and sprites managed to turn this uh, rather dour Puritan family into into something very different. And but I thought I'd just read you a little bit about the Christmas. And what's happening is that all the people who want to celebrate Christmas uh, are having to do it in a barn. And they've had to they've had to do it they're trying to try, trying to do it as far away from the big house so that nobody knows their their Christmas revels are banned. So there must have been more than a score of people in the room for convivial labourers had come from the farms round where a stricter supervision had been kept. Martha, diligence, little Samuel, Ned the houseboy, Charity, and half a dozen others were playing at hot cockles. Rachel, 
Maria Parmenter and Nancy, the oldest of the maids, were roasting chestnuts and crab apples. Crab apples. The butler, Jonathan Fletcher, a grave, silent man, was brewing a bowl of lamb's wool in which the crabs were to float. A group of lads at the far end of the room were improvising clothes for the mumming play. George Batchford, with a cushion on his head to mark his rank as King of the Revels, was directing everyone, his usual gloomy and impassive face aglow with good humour and the nips he had taken to quicken his spirits. Hobbity Dick, unperceived, added his own ho-ho-ho to the sound of merriment which went up from the place and slipped into a dark corner beyond the fire from which he could watch all that went on. Presently, the mummers with blackened faces and gay tags fluttering around them came stamping in from the far end of the room and one of them with a broom in his hand swept the dust in behind the door for luck. Here come I, set on before, to sweep the dust behind the door, he chanted. Then Father Christmas came on, and the king from Wessex, and the dragon with a flail wagging behind him for a tail, the Bessie with a cloak pinned round him for a skirt, an apron borrowed from one of the girls, and the fool with straw in his hair. It was a hotchpotch of a play, for several traditions met there, and everyone made up his part as it suited him, but it was received with great applause, and the girls laughed till their sides ached. Then some of the lads who'd been peering over the heads of the others dragged a big log into the centre of the circle and began to play at pulling Dunn from the mire, lifting and straining with loud gear-ups and trying each man to drop the log on the toes of his fellows until uh, when they were all straining their hardest, George Batchford, as Beelzebub, gave it a sudden push forward and the whole line fell down among louder laughter than ever. And that's probably enough. It's a beautiful, lovely, perfect little children's book. And it is available. We can get hold available. of it, right? Yeah, That's lovely. Okay, great. Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading Alan Moore's novel, <laughs> Jerusalem, all 1,180 pages <laughs> and 600,000 words of it. It took Alan Moore 10 years to write it and me two weeks to read it. And um, uh, I always like the challenge on a Christmas episode of attempting to dis- to discuss an incredibly long book in the space of exactly five minutes. But I'm going to do it because there's a bit I want to read for people on Christmas Day. It's just so perfect. And the reason I read this book is it came out five years ago. It's a novel uh, which is uh, psychogeographic, psychedelic, uh, psychotic. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts and absolutely wonderful. It is one of the least disciplined novels I've uh, ever read, but that would be, if you tried to discipline it, you'd lose the whole point of it. It's just fizzing with light and energy. I think it got kind of ignored a bit because Alan Moore, although famous for writing V for Vendetta, Watchmen from Hell, The Lead of Extraordinary Gentlemen and so on, isn't part of the literary mainstream. But this novel bears comparison with certainly Russell Hoban, certainly Alan Garner, certainly Susanna Clarke. If you like novels which present reality to you in a slightly wrong way, where you spend a lot of the time thinking, what's going on? What's going on? And yet so many ideas are flying at you. It's wonderful. Also, if you if you live in Northampton, you've got to read this book. <laughs> Northampton is the centre of the cosmos, it turns out. <laughs> and and Alan proves it in yeah. Jerusalem. Anyway, there are two reasons why I wanted to talk about it. The first is the middle section of the book is devoted to the adventures of a group of ghost children called the Dead Dead Gang who owe a very huge debt to Famous Five, Secret Seven, Swallows and Amazons, the Baker Street Irregulars, and certainly the Railway Children and Five Children and It and the 
novels of E. Nesbitt. And I, one of the things I hope we'll talk about is one of Nesbitt's achievements is to create that those gangs are are a trope that runs all the way through children's literature ever since. Um, and and this is Alan Moore taking it and doing something disturbing with it, but funny and and it's a proper adventure. But also here's this section. I'm just going to read this. Needless to say, listeners, this is Christmas, so you'll forgive me. Jerusalem by Alan Moore is a book about books, and it's a book about <laughs> reading. And it's we've said on here before, do you read a book or does a book read you? And this is what Alan Moore has to say about that. Page 773, for those of you reading along at home. I know I am a text. I know that you are reading me. This is the biggest difference that there is between us. You do not know that you are a text. You do not know that you're reading yourself. What you believe to be the self-determined life that you are passing through is actually a book already written that you have become absorbed in and not for the first time. When this current reading is concluded, when the coffin lid rear cover is eventually shut tight, then you immediately forget that you've already struggled through it once and pick it up again perhaps attracted by the striking and heroic picture of yourself that's been put on the dust jacket. You wade once more through the glossolalia of the novel's opening and that startling birth scene, all in the first person, foggily described in a confusion of new tastes and scents and terrifying lights. You linger in delight over the childhood passages and savour all the powerfully realised new characters as they are introduced, the mother and the dad, the friends and relatives and enemies, each with their memorable quirks, their singular allure. Engrossing as you find these youthful exploits, you discover that you're merely skimming certain of the later episodes out of sheer boredom, thumbing through the pages of your days, skipping ahead, impatient for the adult content and pornography that you assume to be awaiting you in the next chapter. <laughs> When this turns out to be less an unalloyed joy, less abundant than you have anticipated, you feel vaguely cheated and you rail against the author for a time. By then, though, all the story's major themes are welling up around you in the yarn, madness and love and lost, destiny and redemption. You begin to understand the true scale of the work, its depth and its ambition, qualities that have escaped you until now. There is a dawning apprehension a sense that the tale might not be in the category you previously supposed, that of the picaresque adventure or sex comedy. Alarmingly, the narrative progresses past the reassuring borderlines of genre into the unnerving territory of the avant-garde. For the first time, you wonder if you've bitten off far more than you can chew, embarked upon some weighty magnum opus by mistake when you'd intended to pick up only a potboiler, holiday reading for the airport or the beach. You start to doubt your capabilities as a reader, doubt in your ability to stick this mortal fable out to its conclusion without the attention wandering. And even as you finish it, you doubt that you're astute enough to understand the saga's message, if message there be. You privately suspect that it will sail over your head. And yet what can you do but keep on living? Keep turning the calendar leaf pages, urged on by the cover blurb that says... If you only read one book in your life, <laughs> then make it this one. Oh, brilliant. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message.
That's Johnny Douglas's theme from the 1970 film adaptation of The Railway Children, which is inextricably bound up with what we're going to be talking about today. Catherine, you chose The Railway Children by Ines, but can you remember the first time you read it or saw it or became aware of the book? I do. I was given it as a gift for my eighth birthday and read it in a day and it was like being struck by lightning. I, the kind of love at first sight that you hope you might feel for a person felt it for a book the first time. Um, and I became obsessed with her. And so then I read Five Children and It and The Treasure Seekers and The Would Be Goods. And it was sort of like gorging on this voice that just feels like pure light being flooded. It's like you read a page by her and all the oxygen in a five mile radius just rushes to greet you. And I was besotted and still am. How do you feel about the film? Oh, I saw the film, I think, a little bit later at about 10 and absolutely loved it, but it's very different. I saw it again as an adult. And of course, it feels like a completely different film, but just wonderful. I've got a confession. I'd never read The Railway Children until this week. (gasps) (gasps) That is... No way. I'd seen the film... 200 times, but I've never read the book. I feel like Scott and Amundsen have been reversed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Normally it's me finding the empty tent. Oh, Andy Miller was here. (laughs) Yeah. But I I know I'd never never read it. I thought it was really disappointing. (laughs) I didn't. I I thought it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Frank, can you remember when you first became aware of Inesbit as an author? I think the first time I came across the railway children was going to see the movie, which I loved. And I didn't kind of connect it with anything else until Jack and Ori, uh, when I saw Five Children and It. And oh, whoa. what's that? These are the original uh, illustrations that were used in Jack and Ori, um, wow. which I bought recently because I really didn't get onto the wonder of Ian Esbitt till I had my own children. Right. I started reading them to them. Uh-huh. And I think... You know, I found them quite a hard read, but I found them a wonderful thing to read aloud. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. There's a very short list of truly, truly funny writers. There's P.G. Woodhouse and Richmond Crompton, and her, and I think she's got the edge. I mean, she there, there are so many lines that just stay with you from her forever. I love the bit. There's a chapter in the new Treasure Seekers called The Conscience Pudding, where they try to make a Christmas mm. pudding on the cheap Contents out pudding. of an insanely <laughs> extravagant recipe from Mrs. Beaton. And they keep sort of substituting cheaper and cheaper ingredients like water instead of brandy. And it's uh, I just remember it says, um, it said, wash the raisins. And I've often thought we didn't get all the soap. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like someone had given me the answer book. Fantastic. To have to tell a story. I mean, if there, any, if there are any meaningfully young people listening to this, that we should just say what Frank just showed us were the paintings that the Rostrum camera would pass over on Jack and Ori while the reading was being done. Already this is the magic of Christmas is with us. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, Nikki, when did you first read The Railway Children? Oh, it's nice of you to ask. I I listened to The Railway Children as a child as an audiobook. I mean, probably about 100 times. Um, so I don't know if I've actually ever physically read the book, but I feel like it's imbued in my soul. And we should remind listeners who don't know, you were an early adopter <laughs> of audiobooks. Yeah. 
Yeah. All the classics. I was uh, Swallows and Amazons, Ballet Shoes and the Railway Children, pretty much on repeat. <laughs> Were they on cassette form, Nikki? Yes, yeah, yes. Right. I'd go to sleep listening to them. So, yeah, the Railway Children is is very special, although we'll come on to this, but there's some bits in the Railway Children which, as a child, as a, as a bit of sort of jeopardy, which I found quite difficult. Mm. Mm, well, I tell you what. moments of fear. I mean... I've made the quiz questions as difficult as I humanly can, <laughs> given all these experts who've gathered. So it's going to be fun. Uh, John Mitchinson, when, where, how? I am the generation who who will always forever be in love with Jenny Agatha. Um, it, it was, it, I saw the film first, and that was what made me read the book. As well as being very funny, she's a brilliant, I think, storyteller in the old plot, moving a plot along. But there's a lot mm. more in the book than just plot, which is mm. why it's lovely mm. going back to it. But I read, the, you know, I read uh, Treasure Seekers, Would Be Goods. I'd, I'd, I had no idea until we did this podcast, we will come on to just what an extraordinary life she had. I mean, it's un, un, <laughs> I, I'm, I am reeling. I'm sitting on my hands while we talk about it because there's so much to say there about is so that. Much Let's to stick, say. To the, stick to yeah. the book. So I've got the blurb here. Here I've got a 19... 19- 70 puffin edition of the film tie-in cover of the railway children and what i'm going to ask catherine and frank to do is to come up with an alternative blurb this is what k webb put on the back of the puffin edition first published 50 years ago that's how old this book is first published 50 years ago (laughs) the railway children has entered the realms of children's classics a charming family story. It has appeared as a television series and has now been made into a film. That's it. <laughs> Need we say more? Yeah. So give me, in a, a short sentence or paragraph, Catherine, what is the story of the railway children? So it's four children whose father is arrested wrongly because he is the soul of goodness so they move to the countryside and fall in love with trains a train specifically i think that's pretty good frank can you do it please the children of a prisoner moved out of uh, out of london <laughs> to, to to the frozen north where they get involved in thieving and Thieving coal and um, rehabilitating anarchists. Campaigning. Yeah, rehabilitating <laughs> anarchists. Yeah, for, yeah, you give soccer to foreign, you know, anarchists. Inez was a founding member of the Fabian Society along with H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, etc. And I realised that you could read the railway. My encapsulation of the railway children is it's a Fabian fable in which a working-class community teaches members of the metropolitan elite the true meaning of socialism. Perfect. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's a good one. The children are in are the socialists. It's really interesting. The utopian socialists are definitely the children. They see, they see in inequality more easily and quickly than the adults. Catherine, what, what is it about this particular novel that distinguishes it if, from E. Nesbitt's other novels for children? I think for me as a child and me as an adult, it's slightly different. I think as an adult, I love the 
finesse with which she brings in her really quite radical politics, the Dreyfus affair, the idea of Russian anarchists who, you know, were expelled from their homeland, which is Peter Kropotkin. And, uh, mm-hmm. But also, as a child, it's because it has the finest scene in all children's fiction. Its ending is, I think, maybe the greatest ending of any children's book ever written. The train slowly pulled out of the station. Bobby was left standing there, looking at the steam drifting away. And as it was clearing, she saw a tall figure standing alone on the platform. Daddy, my daddy! I have to tip a hat to Danny Baker, uh, who used to play that exact clip every couple of episodes when he wanted to get people to fill up. (laughs) I think there's something more going on there. I think it's that the story is that Bobby has had to step up to the plate and become an adult. You know, this this is a story about children in the countryside, and it should be Edenic and, you know, completely carefree, but she's discovered the true reason that they're there. So she's had to step up to the plate and become an adult. And when her dad comes back, she gets her childhood back. And so that's that's the pressure between. I think those lines, "Daddy, my daddy," which I can barely say, um, they the, they are. I, I contend that they are the most. That's the most powerful single line that we've got. Maybe "Pray youth, undo this button" is up there with it, but it's like it seems very ordinary. And we, we, you you hear that line, you fill up. And it's because it's got the pressure of that whole story behind it. And that's the sound of a little girl get, becoming a child yeah. again when she didn't I want to be a Also, if you think about the way the whole thing has worked up until then, there's the yearning yes. and the yearning yeah. and the yearning. And it's a book full of very detailed bits of life. And at the very end, there's this sort of promise that sometimes it will go wrong. But just occasionally, so I always cry, the smoke will clear and the thing that your heart yearns for most will be revealed and you will name it and embrace it. And, you know, we wait for miracles our entire lives and just occasionally you get the miracle. And the whole book is just leading up to that promise that it might not come, but sometimes it might just find it so beautiful because we know those stories about you know the outlaws or the famous five or whatever and in this story she's cast out of her gang because she knows something that they don't know so the 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 idyll of the story is taken away from one of the characters and then given back at the end it's i mean it's so amazing you know the start of her discovery of what's really happened is when when the Kropotkin character turns up and she has to go into her mother's bedroom and she sees her father's clothes and knows that something's terribly, terribly wrong because he's gone somewhere without his clothes. Uh, so, like, it's that thing, like, he's a prisoner. Prisoner and captives. Prisoners and captives. Yeah. It all comes in at the same time, but so sneakily. With the reader just one yeah. step ahead of Bobby. Yeah. Just a step ahead. And as Frank says, that moment, just that bit 
where she gets to be a girl again in the film, the shot is of her feet just lifting off the ground and you don't see her, you just see because <laughs> yeah, she's a yeah, child yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Ah, it's just so perfect. It's yeah. perfect. The other emotional high point is the rake scene, which isn't in the film, which is an astonishing scene, really. Nikki, you mentioned the rake scene to us when we were talking about this. Can you tell us a bit what, what happens in the rake scene? Because it's not in the film, is it? Yeah, and this is going back to what I, I really feared throughout this whole, when I listened to this, this was the sort of really quite a scary scene as a child, because particularly when you know it's coming, because if you've ever had a sibling and you've, you've, you've wished them evil at some point <laughs> and, then it, and then it actually follows through, that's a terrible moment, and this is what happens. Uh, would you like me to read it? I have a little bit of it. Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. The children are in the garden. They've been given a little bit of patch of land. And just to context, the children are always good. They're pretty much always, there's a few moments where they do something, mostly they do good things in this, in this book. And the mum has said, you know, I'm so glad you don't argue so much anymore. So they're in the garden and they're just arguing about who's using the rake. I was using the rake, said Bobby. Well, I'm using it now, said Peter. But I had it first, said Bobby. Then it's my turn now, said Peter. And that was how the quarrel began. You're always being disagreeable about nothing, said Peter, after some heated argument. I had the rake first, said Bobby, flushed and defiant, holding onto its handle. Don't! I tell you, I said this morning I meant to have it, didn't I, Phil? Phyllis says she didn't want to be mixed up in their rows, and instantly, of course, she was. If you remember, you ought to say. Of course, she doesn't remember, but she might say so. I wish I'd had a brother instead of two whiny little kitty sisters, said Peter. This was always recognised as indicating the high watermark of Peter's rage. Bobby made the reply she always made to it. I can't think why little boys were ever invented. And just as she said that, she looked up and saw three long windows of mother's workshop flashing in the red rays of the sun. The sight brought back those words of praise. You don't quarrel like you used to. Oh, cried Bobby, just as if she'd been hit or had caught her <laughs> finger in a door or had felt the hideous sharp beginnings of toothache. What's the matter? said Phyllis. Bobby wanted to say, don't let's quarrel. Mother hates it so. But though she tried hard, she couldn't. Peter was looking too disagreeable and insulting. Take the horrid rake then, was the best she could manage. And she suddenly let her go her hold on the handle. Peter had been holding onto it too firmly and pullingly. And now that the pull the other way was suddenly stopped, he staggered and fell over backwards, the teeth of the rake between his feet. Serve you right, said Bobby, before she could stop herself. Peter lay still for half a moment long enough to frighten Bobby a little. Then he frightened her a little more, for he sat up, screamed once, turned rather pale, and then lay back and began to shriek, faintly but steadily. It sounded exactly like a pig being killed a quarter of a mile off. Mother put her head out the window, and it wasn't half a minute after she was in the garden, kneeling by the side of Peter, who never for an instant ceased to squeal. What happened, Bobby? Mother asked. It was the rake, said Phyllis. Peter was pulling at it, so was Bobby, and she let go and he went over. Stop that noise, Peter, said Mother. Come, stop at once. Peter used up what breath he had left in his last squeal and stopped. Now, said Mother, are you hurt? If he was really hurt, he wouldn't make such a fuss, said Bobby, still trembling with fury. He's not a coward. I think my foot's broken off, that's all, said Peter huffily and sat up. Then he turned quite white. Mother put her arm around him. He is hurt, she said. He's fainted. Here, Bobby, sit down and take his head on your lap. Then Mother undid Peter's boots 
As she took the right one off, something dripped from his foot onto the ground. (laughs) It was red blood. And when the stocking came off, there were three red wounds in Peter's foot and ankle where the teeth of the rake had bitten him and his foot was covered with red smears. Oh, you know, there is an argument. Andrew Mayle says this, that the railway children is folk horror. (laughs) (laughs) Well... And that's an example of it right there. It, it, and it that winds Bobby's kind of, you know, this is this is she's this is the the mo- we've had the moment of release at the, at the end, but this is what's this liminal state she is between adulthood and, and childhood and and she feels, you know, that she feels that she's she's responsible for everybody and she's responsible for for Peter and now she's let him down. It's it's just it's brilliant. Catherine, what's going on in that scene in terms of what are the challenges for if you're writing that kind of scene where you've got three child personalities to set off against one another? I mean, um, it is her absolute magic skill that she appears to believe that children are people at a time when a lot of people didn't and that each of them mm. reacts in a way that is completely consistent with who they are and consistently reveals who they are. And she lets them be, as Nikki says, often very good, but often also frustrating and annoying and with the kind of intricacies of pride and vulnerability that just blare out in that sudden scene. And I think it's one of the finest pieces of that particular kind of writing because you just feel your blood just sort of retreat. It's, it's a remarkable thing. There's a fabulous metatextual bit near the end where Peter is saying to his mother, wouldn't this be marvellous if you were writing this as a story in a book? <laughs> it's one of the best statements about fiction in, in all fiction. Don't you think it's rather nice to think we're in a book that God's writing? Yeah. If I were writing a book, I might make mistakes. But God knows how to make the story end just right in the way that's best for us. Do you really believe that, mother? Peter asked quietly. Yes, she said. I do believe it, almost always, except when I'm so sad that I can't believe anything. And even when I can't believe it, I know it's true, and I try to believe it. You don't know how I try, Peter. Now, take the letters to the post, and don't let's be sad anymore. Courage, courage, that's the finest of all the virtues. I just, I mean, it's just brilliant, isn't it? The, the, the influence of Lawrence Stern on the work of E. Nesbitt, hitherto unnoticed. There is a Stern yeah. in... Thing to, I mean, like the ending that we've just spoken about, that very emotional ending, isn't the la- they're not the last few pages of the book. No. The last few pages of the book is yeah. this amazing kind of p- yeah. pull zoom um, track back yeah. where she says, Well, they're going into the house now and we shouldn't be in there. And she becomes the writer and, and puts those characters away. And it's, it's really deft and it's really clever, but it's also really emotional because that girl has become a girl again. Yeah. And this storyteller steps in and says, you know, you are just listening to a story again. And she kind of releases you oh, out of any good. worries yes, that you've had true. about it. You know, so it's it's clever, it's sternian, and, but it's also incredibly emotional mm. and consoling. You know, this is just a story. We don't belong in it. And they're going into their house. Stop worrying about them. It's kind of a blessing, you know, at the end. She's so adept, you know. The narrator picks Bobby out early on, doesn't doesn't she? And says, you know, I'm rather fond of Bobby. Oh, then yeah. first of all, she calls her Roberta, and then she says, oh, I'm going to call her Bobby like everybody else. It seems silly not to. I mean, she, she is brilliant about playing narration games. If you yeah. think of um, 
there would be goods where the narrator is Oswald, but you're not supposed to know that the narrator is Oswald. So because I'm not telling you who's telling you this story. So ahead of her time. I love that she does that. It's such a trust in children to pick up what's happening. She, I think she believed in her readers so utterly and didn't believe that they needed to be told what to do. There's no sort of blunt didacticism. Obviously, there's a lot of sort of morality in it, but it's the morality coated with, with sort of sunshine and, and hope and reality. It's it's so different from what came before. I think anyone who reads the books that were published in the 1850s and 70s and then reads Nesbitt, mm. it feels like she has come from 100 years ahead of her time to offer up what storytelling yeah. could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frank, the last time we discussed this book was when we were doing the Tristram Shandy show and I've, I posited an idea that you uh, poo-pooed. So I want to test it on you again and test it on everyone today. And I'm going to go around and ask father in the railway children innocent or guilty frank <laughs> god it'd be great if he was guilty wouldn't it <laughs> well good news he he is uh, as far as like he the story is You've much much stronger if he's guilty but that's just my that's just my interpretation yeah okay you say that's a vote for guilty no definitely a vote, a vote for guilty. all right nikki innocent or guilty if he's guilty what has the old gentleman done who's he bribed what I want yeah, to know. exactly right. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> it's like Dreyfus. That's what it's about. Catherine, innocent or guilty? Is father innocent or guilty? Come on, you have to decide. You're on the jury. Okay. Um, I mean, if he's guilty, everyone has to be in on it. That, you know, because there's no other way to get him off. Like Perks, Paley Turks, Jim. Um, so, I, and yeah, mm-hmm. sure. It's a very different book, but I'll go with it. Yeah. Guilty. So daddy is like, I am the daddy. That's his prison name. Yeah. There's, there's, more, there's more of scum in the railway children than we than we hitherto realised. John, daddy, innocent or guilty? Uh, I'm going to get philosophical. It's, it's innocent what and guilty guilt? of what? Is I suppose. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that it's it's right. perfectly it's perfectly possible that he he was he was um, guilty of organising politically against the government from within the government mm. because he's a good man. Um, I think he's a good man and probably didn't deserve to be imprisoned. But that's the subversiveness of this book. It's I mean, you know, right. if it really is yeah. if it yeah. really is yeah. Kropotkin, it's a bit like Dreyfus. I mean, obviously Dreyfus was not Dreyfus was became something that represented something far more than he he himself was. I think there's all sorts of stuff like you know, you're talking about the ending that hit him coming back it's they are in exile i mean they are essentially exiled in their own country it's hard to imagine what happens next with that family does he go back to take his government job or do they does he become a smallholder up in wherever it is derbyshire yorkshire wherever we we think it might be so innocent or guilty if guilty is guilty of that then he's guilty but you know i just it made me think of there's a fame of orson wells who directed an adaptation of The Trial, the Franz Kafka novel yeah. The Trial. And he said the problem with the film, with adaptation of The Trial, is everybody thinks Joseph K is innocent. innocent. But yeah, he yeah, isn't. He's guilty as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've my found with my watching of The Railway Children, I love the idea. Why would you cast Ian Cuthbertson, for starters, unless he was guilty? He's obviously guilty. But also in the light of what you were saying about Daddy, My Daddy, there is, if he's guilty, the redemption offered to both Bobby and 
the father is a very different thing. And the love offer that exists between Bobby and the father is a very different thing than if he's just wrongly imprisoned, which indeed he might be wrongly imprisoned. There isn't any one right answer. But the strong emotions generated by that section of the book, which we've already (laughs) all experienced today, it seems to me you're forgiven. You're forgiven is part of the yeah, yeah, yeah no, I think that's. I mean, she goes to some lengths to to say that the Russian emigre, you know, it, the the Kropotkin character, yeah. you know, what, is accused of something he did do. Yeah, yes, you know, exactly. It was wrong in that state, but that doesn't mean it's it's an absolute wrong, and that's quite a chunk of the book. So yeah, I think that I think it stands up. I think it stands up, Andy. Thanks, Frank. This is in 1905, <laughs> right when. Uh, you know, she's hobnobbing with with the, with the, uh, the early Fabians and and w- William Morris, and you know, this is it's that that they are, um, you know, revolution is being fomented. So Inez, it was as you say, John, successful in her era, a big personality, part of the Fabian society, was a was a best selling Christmas author. These books would be serialised and then they'd come out in book form the following Christmas. The Railway Children was published for Christmas 1906. And prolific. 60 books. Here's a, I wanted to read this, um, this incredible description of um, E. Nesbitt and her husband, Mr. Hubert Bland. <laughs> Who was, he should have been imprisoned. <laughs> this is from the Star magazine in May 1888. It's described as a bohemian household. E. Nesbitt, the gifted poetess of Longman's Magazine and the Weekly Dispatch, is known among her friends, literary and otherwise, as Mrs. Edith Bland, wife of Hubert Bland. She is a tall woman of somewhat over 30, with dark hair and eyes. (laughs) Although, (laughs) Although her features are not precisely regular, their expression is full of charm when they are lit up by a smile or animated by any absorbing topic. Mrs. Bland has a soft, melodious voice, and her manner may best be described by the French term "onlinery." That's that's not a word, everybody. <laughs> that's the, the the person from the Star made that up. She dresses in liberty fabrics. Mister Hubert Bland is a tall, broad, portly man with a large head. <laughs> he, he is dark, wears a moustache, and imperial, and is a little under forty. The Blands used to live at Blackheath, but now reside at Lee in Kent. They have two children, a boy, they actually had three children, everybody, a boy and a girl, the former of whom now bears the familiar name of Fabian Bland. So not only did they found the Fabian Society, they called their son Fabian. Um, so they were they were for real. Um, do you see her politics in her work? Or does she keep it contained elsewhere? Anyone? I mean, there's, there's quite like the story of the amulet has got quite a lot of very direct political commentary about slavery and oppression and imperialism. The politics is sort of ambient in the railway children, isn't it? And I think part of the power of the railway children is that you're aware that there is a world elsewhere where things are going terribly wrong, where you know innocent men perhaps or guilty men are being arrested, and where you know all kinds of stuff is happening in Russia. Um, and but it's sort of happening off stage and you're just living in it and i guess in some ways 
the Railway Children has some elements of a sort of socialist utopian ideal in the sense that one of its core hearts is surrogacy. And when they lose their father and their mother is absent, there is this idea that in the face of your loss, others will stand up and swing for you. And the old man will, the gentleman and perks will, and there will be people who will take some of your burden and march alongside you. And that's a, a very much, I think, a childlike ambient sense of, of some of her politics, maybe. Yeah, there is such a thing as community after all, yeah. Catherine and Frank, I'd like to ask you both, as children's authors, as people who write for children, what elements of Nesbitt do you try to put into your work? What are the lessons for you as, as writers for children or writers about writers children? Writers who are read by children. Mm. From a purely sort of technical side of thing, I think part of her brilliance is less is more. That, you know, rather than kind of inventing more and more and more and more dragons or whatever, she'll really, she'll come up with something and really push on it and really exhaust it. Like I said, you know, the carpet's threadbare or, you know, even in the railway children, which seems quite, in lesser hands, the railway children, they would ship up in that village in Yorkshire or whatever and meet cookie wacky people. And it would be about how different their world is. In the, in the book, The Railway Children, it's quite a long time before they meet anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the practicality of moving in in the dark, where the food is, how you heat the house, how you make a game of that. Is it going to be fun? What does it do into your characters? So she sticks with those characters and she really, really drills down into them, exercises them, tests them, relishes them, enjoys them, nurtures them, makes them grow and harvests them rather than just throwing more and more stuff in which is what i think you know nearly every imitation of the railway children and there are many many imitations of the railway children are about how weird the new place is but the this is about testing the characters that you brought with you i think catherine could you could you read uh, um a little bit for us please? i would love to so um this is one of my favorite bits as a child because in a book in which so many people are playing on a minor chord. There is so much that people are a little bit sardonic, a little bit ironical, and that is the absolute gift of the book. The asides, Phyllis, who means well. She does also allow us a moment of just straightforward valour, heroism, just where everything comes together and they are able to do something brave at exactly the right time. But even though she's doing that, it's not like they do it uh, with straightforward confidence and with bulging muscles. They do it. They tear off their flannel petticoats because they know that there has been a landslide. And if the train goes round the corner, it won't have time to stop and everybody will die. So they are facing true peril, but they face it with... Phyllis gets sort of sweaty and anxious instead of heroic. And she says, I wish I hadn't put on my flannel petticoats. It's too hot. And that is why they pull them off, put them into flags. I'm just going to read a very tiny bit. So the train is coming and Bobby has her flag and she is waving. And they've also put some flags by the side of the line and they are hoping that the train will see. The two little flags on the line swayed as the nearing train shook and loosened the heaps of loose stones that held them up. One of them slowly leaned over and fell onto the line. Bobby jumped forward and caught it up and waved it. Her hands did not tremble now. Keep off the line, you silly cuckoo, 
said Peter fiercely. It seemed that the train came on as fast as ever. It was very near now. It's no good, Bobby said suddenly. Stand back, cried Peter, and he dragged Phyllis back by the arm. But Bobby cried, not yet, not yet, and waved her two flags right over the line. The front of the engine looked black and enormous and its voice was loud and hard. Oh, stop, 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 cried Bobby. No one heard her. At least Peter and Phyllis didn't, for the oncoming rush of the train covered the sound of her voice with a mountainous sound. But afterwards, she used to wonder whether the engine itself had not heard her. It seemed almost as though it had, for it slackened swiftly, slowed and stopped not twenty yards from the place where Bobby's two flags waved over the line. It's just, it's just, it's just perfect. (laughs) So wonderful. Well, I mean, that's part part of the politics is that she's great at writing heroic women and clever women and witty women. Women who step up. There's that amazing bit where she gets onto the train as well. Um, and she doesn't mean yes, to. She's trying magic. to, and she says she'd never been so close to an engine before. It looked much larger and harder than she'd expected. And it made her feel very small indeed, and somehow very soft, as if she could very, very easily be hurt rather badly. I know what silkworms feel like now," said Bobby to herself. <laughs> There's very few books I've, I've highlighted as many passages as I've got such joy out of reading it. That whole thing of re- I, I often wonder why. This book, because I, I think all her books are, well, not all her books, but like there's a, she wrote a selection of masterpieces. Yeah. And why, why does this book and why does this film have such a kind of fixed place? And I, I think it might be partly because when the film came out, the parents of the children who went to see that film had by and large been evacuated. And she had by accident written the great novel of evacuation. And you know, all the aspects of evacuation, there, that sense that there's danger elsewhere, the sense that you, you're going to be eating unfamiliar food, mm-hmm. you're going to be surrounded by unfamiliar mm-hmm. people, you're going to change class. All those things are kind of in there. And, That's brilliant. Yeah. And, and, I think, and, and the figure of the father coming back at yeah. the end yeah. is also a soldier returning, yeah, isn't it? My mum my was evacuated to, um, to a convent in Pemamar in North Wales with all her sisters. And... Um, then and she was there for the whole duration and it was a palace you know and she came from this tiny terraced house and they lived in this palace and were petted and the, the night before her first communion she heard her dad's voice outside their little dormitory and he'd been he was on the Atlantic convoys he was in, you know the merchant marine and it was him he, he knew it was her first communion she'd come up the night and she jumped out of bed and she was sent back to bed and to me that moment is is there in the end of this book, you know, that mm. she had this voice in the night that was, it was impossible that it could be that voice, but it was that voice come out of this terrible danger, you know? And I think for lots of people, the, the, there's a resonance in the railway children and evacuation, which I think is partly why that film is so powerfully well received. You know, there are other great sh- children's films from that era, whistle down the wind, yeah, and all yeah. that, uh, but this has got this deep resonance. Now, I had a drink with a chap a few years ago in Henley-on-Thames, uh, and I was, I, he, he was with, we was with a group of friends, and we were having a drink. I thought, God, you really look familiar. And uh, he's like a middle-aged man, a bit older than me. And uh, I went, I, I feel like I know you from somewhere. He goes, yeah, but I get that a lot. I was in the railway children. No. Was he boy? Yeah. Was he Peter? <laughs> yeah. Peter? He was Peter. Oh, it was Gary no. who plays Peter wow. in the Railway Children. Yeah. Such a nice chap. Really, really lovely man. 
Jenny Agata's performance is 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 just astonishing, and it, the way she delivers those lines with such. I mean, not only the beautiful diction, but she, the emotion is just extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting how the film opens with her as a grown woman yeah. looking back on the events that it's almost like you're being given, it's almost being presented to you as autobiographical. The, the, the Nesbitt's story is autobiographical. But then, Catherine, so much of Nesbitt's writing is not autobiographical, but seems to be derived from she was a she was, seems to have been a great one for asking people for plots <laughs> yeah but then investing other people's plots with her own emotional experiences yeah. and i mean she is a very interesting one in that she is one of the many children's writers who wrote staggeringly well about children but didn't necessarily treat children staggeringly well um you know, oh, she no. she had Absolutely. some children who were not hers, who but she adopted as hers, who were her husband's children with the nurse friend maid figure, Alice. And then she cut those children out of her will. And they only found out at yeah. her death. And she was a woman who I think saw such richness and goodness and she understood jokes and she understood the childhood heart. But, but I'm not sure if she actually knew how to, play with and be kind to real children. There's a blood-chilling description in the, this biography by Eleanor Fitzsimons of a, um, a visitor who spends the weekend at the Bland's stroke Nesbitt's, who says, initially it all seemed quite fun, and by the end I couldn't <laughs> wait to get out because I realised this, this terrible psychodrama being endlessly played out between... Nesbit, her husband, the other woman who lived in the house, the children, and that that's where the yeah, energy I, came from. Yeah. That's yeah, what I found yeah. so interesting. Yeah. The energy came from that that sense of one person saying something and not meaning it, and how does another person think about that? And, you know, a perpetual rolling soap opera. I think H.G. Wells, who wasn't yeah. exactly, you know, you know. Mr. Prim and Proper, he called no. the, he called their relationship intricate. Yes, he's, <laughs> well said. Well said. This thing he said, I found these two people and their atmosphere and their household of children and those who were entangled with them baffling to the extreme degree. At the first encounter, it seemed so extraordinarily open and jolly. Then suddenly you encountered fierce resentment. You found Mrs. Bland inexplicably malignant. Doors became walls, so to speak, and floors pitfalls. That's so good. It's interesting. It's Get Out, isn't it? It's like being in Get Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the biographical detail that E. Nesbitt, basically, uh, everything's going great. She's selling lots of books. She's very popular. And then in about 1910 or 11, she decides she's going to stop writing so she can concentrate on proving that Shakespeare didn't write all his plays. <laughs> and that's what she does for the next 10 years. Yeah. It's like a Patricia Cornwall um, proving Sickert is Jack the Ripper or Jack the Ripper is Sickert. It's like, this is what I need to spend all my money on now. Nesbitt and Bland are the kind of people that Richmond Compton like, takes the piss out of in Just William. Yeah. You know, the people, they, they are the people who move into the empty house next door and paint fairies in the nude or something. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and commune with voices. It's, it's, no, you but know, then, yeah, like exactly Oswald that. and Noel in The Basketball Children, those are named after her lovers. The sort of, the gall that she had to just lay out little hints of her real life mm. in these beautiful, exquisite children's books. It's an astonishing thing. Well, this is all very well, but 
if we keep going, there won't be time for the quiz. Now, what we've what we've done is we've we're dividing our uh, guests and regular backlisted people up into teams today. So we've got one team is going to be Catherine and John, and the other team is going to be Frank and Nikki. Catherine and John, what is your team name today? Um, do you want to say, Catherine? Well, this is John's idea. I love it so much. We are the Dumb Crambos. <laughs> the Dumb Crambos. Thank you very much. Very good. What an esoteric <laughs> pub quiz this is. Right, very good. Nikki and Frank, what will you be referred to for the quiz now? Go on, Nikki. I think we're going to be called butter and jam. (laughs) (laughs) Because mum said you can't have both. That would be reckless abandon. Reckless abandon. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. So round one is questions on the novel The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt. And my first question goes to the dumb crambos, Catherine and John. We all know the 915 up the line is the green dragon. What do the children call the 10-7 down the line? The, the worm of Wantley? Yes. Is, it, is it the worm? John, it's the right answer. Oh Very good. John, that's good. One point to the dumb crambos. I'm giving up now. Butter and jam. <laughs> what is the name of the franchise that runs the line that runs along the bottom of the railway children's garden? Go on, Nikki. The Great Northern and Southern. Yes, the, I'll, I'll take it. The Great Northern, it's Christmas Day. The Great Northern and Southern <laughs> Railway Company. That's the right answer. That was That's our alternative it. team name. That's great. Brilliant. Good. It's one all, it's one all everybody. It's already tense. Yeah. It is. Question three to the dumb crambos, Catherine and John. Please name three of the gifts collected by the children to give to Mr. Perks on his birthday. Well, there's the pram, of course, which Mrs. Perks is not sending back. Um, there's the shovel. There's the shovel. Nine. Good to have a good shovel. There are some kind of sweets, but we probably need the specific... Is it peppermints? Is it bullseyes? Um, I think... Uh, what about... The, there's, a, there's, a, there's a there's a honeycomb. Yes, yes, there is. Let's go with that. That's yes, right. three. I will, you get your point. Well done. Very good. I will read you out what they collect from the from this doesn't count the things that they themselves give over a tobacco pipe from the sweet shop half a pound of tea from the grocers a woolen scarf slightly faded from the drapers yeah. which was the other side of the grocers a stuffed squirrel, squirrel. from the doctor there was an extra point for the squirrel but sorry, sorry about that a piece a piece of meat from the butcher yeah. six fresh eggs from the woman who lived in the old turnpike cottage and a piece of honeycomb and six bootlaces from the cobbler and an iron shovel from the blacksmith from the blacksmith wonderful yeah. very good well done respectable Question four goes to Butter and Jam. Frank and Nicky, please name the two residences in which the railway children live. Well, Three Chimneys. Three Chimneys is the first one. Mm, the one and the one. villa. That it's, it's the villa, oh. isn't it? It is a villa, that's all I know, yeah. Yeah, but it's... Uh, if you want the point, I need to know the name of the it, villa. It had every modern convenience and it was painted white. That's uh, right. You but know what it, was you it know called? It. <laughs> <laughs> the Vinery? No. Want to guess? Go for uh, it. Go on, say that, Frank. Uh, I don't have no clue. Is it, is it Edgecombe Villa, Andy? <sighs> it is, but there were no bonus oh, points available, John, but it is Edgecombe Villa. Well done, <laughs> well, done well done, well done. Well done, John. Okay, so uh, 
there is another. There's one, but I, I. It's Christmas Day. Let's offer butter and jam an opportunity to make up that. I'm not going to do it. What is the name of the family dog that doesn't make it to three chimneys? Because it runs away at the beginning. Oh, it's like a, it's a boy dog, I think. It is. <laughs> it is a boy dog. Um, this oh. is a horrible experience. I don't know. Also, no, Frank, listen, I'll give you a clue. Yeah. He shares a name with the hound later in the book. Jim. Jim. Yes, the dog is called James. <laughs> I, uh, Jim, I will give you the point. Yeah. Well done. So at the end of round one, it's neck and neck between the dumb crambos and butter and jab. Round two. It's Tenuous Links. Uh. Now, that's a backlisted callback, which we haven't heard for five years, but it's Tenuous Links. And the first question goes to uh, Butter and Jam, Frank and Nikki. What is the tenuous link between E. Nesbitt and her fellow children's authors, Antonia Barber, Elizabeth Beresford and Charles Kingsley? I don't know who they are, so that's a bad start. It's not the Fabian Society, is it? It's not the Fabian Society. It's not Wimbledon. It's not the Wimbledon. It's not it's Wimbledon. Not, it's a London postcode, no. Um, Do you give up or would you want to guess? Are they all in an Antonia Bayer book? No. No, that's a good guess, but no, that's not right. No. <laughs> the tenuous link is they are all authors of novels made into films by Lionel Jeffries. Uh, oh, The Amazing Mr. Blunden. Yeah. And Wombling Free and The Water Babies. Why? Right. So, sorry Very about good. that. The amazing Mr. Right. just been remade by Mark Gatiss. Tenuous links this to the dumb crambos, Catherine and John. What connects the following novels? The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt. The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico. The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. And The Riddle of the Sands by our old pal Erskine Childers, John. What connects those four books? Uh, did they all have soundtracks by Johnny Douglas? No, I'm afraid not. I, Catherine? Afraid I haven't a clue. Frank knows, though. Frank knows. Frank, but I can't give you a point, Frank, but do you know what the answer is? Isn't she in all of them? She's in all those films. Who? Jenny Agatha. Jenny Agatha. <laughs> Jenny Agatha. Yeah, they are well all done, made Frank. into films yeah. starring Jenny Agatha. That's <laughs> right. Brilliant. The Snow well, Goose, The Eagles landed, landed, The Riddle of the Sands and... Um, the Railway Children. Brilliant. Course. I should have got that. Butter and Jam. <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> Which two actors appear both in the 1968 BBC adaptation of The Railway Children and the 1970 film adaptation? There are only two actors. I, know, I don't know the names both. of the Who actors, but I know the characters. So I, uh, it's Christmas. I'll give it to you. Go on. So, so Jenny Agatha is one. Yes. And then Jim is the other. Yes, you are right. I will give you the point. So it's Jim the Hound yeah. is is the same actor in both the TV. But for a bonus point, do you know that actor's name, anybody? There is a bone, amazing bonus point <laughs> if you know the actor's name. Oh, this is, hang on. Mm-mm. I do I, not. Anyone? I, funnily enough, I did look at it the other day. I can't remember. The actor... Was called Chris Whitty. Whitty no right. way! <laughs> <laughs> How topical! That's so we brought it back to 2021. 
Uh, and that, so, okay, that's, so, all right, well, everything to play for, dumb crambos. And this is a question where I have my dear colleague, John Mitchinson, in mind, because it's a publishing special question. No pressure. Great. No pressure, John, no pressure. So in 1970, when the Railway Children film came out, uh, there was, uh, a, as we've discussed, a tie-in edition of the novel. There was a film adaptation version of the novel by Paul Davis and Jane Hollywood. And there was also uh, Pan put out in their paper sculpture book series. The Railway Children paper sculpture book includes two superb model engines for you to build. It costs 75p. You probably remember it, John. Text and pictures from the film, two cut-out engines... Who drew the two cutout engines and went on to find fame in the pop charts later in the 1970s? <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Tenuous link. I said it was tenuous. Tenuous link. I can't imagine. It was 1970. They were based in Manchester. There's a clue. So quite soon after they'd done this drawing. Yeah, within five years, they're number one in the pop charts. Like it's, it's like, I don't know, Manchester. Gilbert O'Sullivan didn't draw, did no, he? The two, <laughs> no, I like the guess. No, the two cutout engines were drawn by two Manchester art students called Lowell Cream and Kevin Godley. Oh, no. From 10CC. That's brilliant. So there we go. Of course. Uh, so at the end of round two, scores are the Dumb Crambos two points, but Butter and Jam are in the lead with three. What? Oh, well. That's right, Frank. You're in the lead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Come on, bring it on. Right. Round three is a round we're calling Nesbit or Nesmith. Uh, on, the week we're re- <laughs> on the week we're recording this, Michael Nesmith the Monkeys has unfortunately, great hero of mine, he's died. I'm going to give you the name of either a short story by E. Nesbitt or a song by Michael <laughs> Nesmith or the Monkees. And you have to say either Nesbitt or Nesmith. Right? Is that clear? Great. Great. Wonderful. First one to the dumb crambos. We'll make it easy. Easy one to start with. Daydream Believer. Nesmith. Is the right answer. Is a hit for the Monkees. Well done. <laughs> The only one I'd be able to get. Butter and jam. Even then, barely. Girl with the guitar. I'm going to go Nesbit. Is the right answer. Nesbit. Very good. Very Very good. good. Trick question. Okay. Dumb Crambos. Nesbit or Nesmith? The door into summer. Go, Catherine. I mean, I would think Nesbit, so maybe it's Nesmith. What do you think, John? I see the old double bluff thing. I I think we should be bold and just say Nesbit. All right. Nesbit. No, it's a track on Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones Limited, I'm afraid. Uh, So you don't get a point for that. It's Nesmith. Butter and Jam. Is this Nesbit or Nesmith? Last train to Keithley. (laughs) That's got to be Nesbit in her monkey's mode. It's like she wrote the first draft of Last Train to Clarksville. I know that she did that. It's actually a trick question. It's neither of them. There's nothing (laughs) called Last Train to Keithley. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) I'll give you another one instead. Nesbit or Nesmith? Salesman. I'm going to say Nesmith. You are right. It is Nesmith. Well done, Butter and Jam. 
Well, brilliant, Nick. Nick. All right. Dumb Crambos. Under the New Moon. Um, mm. What do you think? Given that the others were Nesbitt, should we go Nesmith? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think so. Okay, we'll I go. Just in... what, is he saying oh, wait. Yes, Nesbitt? Is that right? Are we saying, qu- are we saying Nesmith? <laughs> You're saying bit or Nesmith. myth? Which one are you saying? I don't let's know. Say ne- don't, you can't hedge your bets. Let's say Nesmith. We're, saying, we're going to say Nesmith. Okay. Under the New Moon is a short story by E. Nesbitt, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, do, I am sorry. Um, I'm not sorry, really. This is my favourite kind of GCSE, multiple choice. Come on, guys. Yeah. All right. Okay. Butter and Jam, Love's First Kiss. Is it a song by Michael Nesmith or a short story by E. Nesbitt? What do we think, Frank? I'm going to go Nesmith for this. Yeah? She doesn't do love stories, does she? She does a couple, but I don't remember that. Frank is quite okay. right. It is, of course, a trap hey. from, from a radio engine to a photon wing by Michael Nesmith. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Well done. <laughs> Dumb Crambos. Meddlesome Pussy. <laughs> got to be Nesbit. Come on. Nesbit or Nesmith? <laughs> has to be Nesbit, doesn't it? Yeah, we're going Nesbit. Yeah. This is a family program and you're right. It's Nesbit. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Meddlesome Pussy is a song by is a story by We'd have done uh, better just to say Nesbit. Nesbit to everything. Yeah. And though, so that leaves Butter and Jam the last one. Tapioca Tundra. Oh, that's got to be Ness Smith, right? I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is the monkey song "Tapioca Tundra" by Michael Nesmith. Very yeah. good. So at the quiz, at, at the end of round yeah, three, good quiz. Well, there's more. Dumb Crambos yeah. have yeah. four. <laughs> Butter and Jam have seven. But don't worry, there's still a chance to you. There's still you could make it all back, Dumb Crambos, because <laughs> I've built this right. Okay, Nikki, it's the music round. Brilliant. Right. Okay. And the first question is for you, Nikki. Okay. What I want to know is who <laughs> is the artist? Every summer we can rent a cottage in the Isle of Wight. If it's not too dear, we shall scrimp and save grandchildren on your knee. Vera. Frank, you, you used to look like you put your finger up saying like you knew what it was. Who was it? Is it Bernard Cribbins? It is Bernard Cribbins. And for a bonus for a bonus point to anyone, the first person to answer a bonus point, that is Bernard Cribbins' cover version of When I'm 64 by the Beatles. What is notable about that? Uh, was it released on Apple? No. Did it come out before the Beatles song? <laughs> I'm going to give John that point. Wow. It is the first song ever to be covered off Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because it was produced by George Martin who kind of slipped it under the table to Bernard. You can hear that, yeah. There you go. So, okay, next question to Catherine. Catherine, what is – it's an E. Nesbitt connection – Please name the artist with an E. Nesbitt connection, not a Railway Children connection. Who are we listening to here? The bells are ringing loud and clear From the Anglican Cathedral It's the season of good cheer There's a cockroach in my beer 
children come to visit me. On their faces is a frown. I will stand to bring a presence. There's no chimney to get down. Where to find a Christmas pudding? Well, I haven't got a clue. We couldn't get a turkey. Yes, that's Christmas in Haiti. But who's the artist and what is the, the connection, connection to Inez? Inez but um, I have, I'm afraid, no idea at all. Is it someone who is a famous socialist? Is it someone whose name is Fabian? Um, I'm... What a lovely idea. That's a lovely idea, it isn't. I'm going to give up. Who um, doesn't? It's 1980s indie band, The Would Be Goods. Oh. <laughs> So I can't give you the point for that. I am sorry. Butter and jam and Frank, here's one for you. Till you come back to love me. Come back to take care of me. I know I'll have to get along somehow. Looking pleased with himself again. No, so. no, I'm just so charmed by oh. it. Yes. Um, no, no, I no clear. Um, oh no! Is it again related? This is related to Inez bit in the Railway Children. Well, it's the theme well, tune from the, it's the theme music from the Railway Children. It is the yeah. theme tune from the Railway Children to which they've added words. Who yeah. is singing them? Oh, crooner, British crooner yeah. from the late sixties. Mm-hmm. Is it like Des O'Connor or someone? It's like that? in that ballpark. Is it, it's yeah. not Adam Faith. No. No. I, I would describe him as Edelweiss hitmaker. Engelbert? No, oh, you're getting yeah, so I close. Think, I was thinking Engel, but trying to help you out. You're doing a very good job helping. I'm just, we're just not Edelweiss finding hitmaker. it, retrieving the information. Well, I'm going to have to tell you, it was Vince Hill. It was Vince Hill, uh, <laughs> more than ever now. Uh, a B-side that came out as. Um, but So it wasn't the big hit they hoped for. Right. Uh, so that so Dumb Crambos, here's, this is everything to play for on this one, and it's John. This falls to John. Here we go, John. I want to know who the artist is performing this piece of music from 1982. Warm up exercise one. Stretch really tall from the waist right up. Bend your knees... Bounce into the knees and then up. We'll do that exercise eight times. One. Two. <laughs> this first Three. exercise is just to loosen you up. Four. <laughs> Five. Six. Daddy, my daddy. Is it Jenny Agatha by any chance? No, and I, if that was your answer, it isn't. I'm afraid that is Sally, Sally Thompson. Thompson. Oh, that's the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> Sally Thompson. Uh, Sally Thompson uh, on Lottie Burke, the German uh, physical uh, instructress, and her album Get Physical from 1982. Very good. Very good. 
translated into English and enunciated perfectly by Slater Thompson. So there's only one question left, yeah. but there are three points up for grabs. So y- you could still do it, dumb crambos. And butter and jam, you have to fiercely protect your competitive <laughs> advantage at this point. We are going to hear three different audiobooks of the Railway Children. All you have to do, Nikki, don't play it yet. All you have to do is name the three readers. But to make it more interesting, Steve Reich style, we're going to listen to them all simultaneously. <laughs> they, they were not, not railway children to begin with. They were just ordinary suburban I don't suppose children. they had ever they lived with their father and mother in the old and new red getting to Rascaville and Cooks, the pantomime of zoological gardens, and Madame Tussauds. They were just ordinary suburban children. And they lived with their father and mother in an ordinary red brick villa. With coloured glass in the front door, a tile passage, a bathroom with hot and cold water, electric bells, French windows meant well, and a good deal of white paint. Who wanted and to be an engineer? Every modern convenience, as the house agents say. Now, obviously, they don't sync because the, they read at different speeds and also the text, all three texts are I different because they're different edited versions. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to, I'm going to ask you, uh, each team, to name one at a time, okay? So I'm going to go to you, dumb crambos, first. Can you name one of those readers? One is Jenny Agatha. Oh. Uh, no, 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 it's okay, because I'm going to assume Butter and Jam got that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, okay. So we both got, well done, you both got that one. And now I'm going to ask Butter and Jam to name a second reader. Can we confer? I don't want to... Yes, you, by all means, confer now. Do you have a... a... I don't know. No, I don't know who it is. I don't know who read the one I always listened to when I was little. Is the male Josh Ackland? Oh, that's, that's a good, good guess. guess. It isn't Joss Ackland. Mm. So I'm going to throw it over to you for the second guess. Dumb Crambos. Is the, is the man Martin Jarvis or Stephen Thorne? It's not Martin Jarvis. Stephen Thorne. That was a good guess because Martin yeah, Jarvis does do it. all audiobooks. Yeah, but no, it's not. It's not Martin it's Jarvis, no. Stephen Fry? It's not. It's not no, Stephen Fry. All right. Can it come back so, to us? Uh, is it Ian Cuthbertson? So uh, it's not Ian Cuthbertson. Okay. You're getting warmer. Michael Butter Kitchen. And Jam, you're getting warmer. No, not Michael Kitchen. Don't. No, come on, dumb crambos. We've got to give Butter and Jam there. So Butter and Jam. Go on, Nikki. Is the woman who, the other woman, is she the mum in yes. the film? Yes. So who is that, the mum in the film? Is it... Oh, Dinah Sheridan. <laughs> it is Dinah Sheridan. Butter and jam. Well done. Now, so that means I have to ask Dumb Crambos, who is the male is the voice? Man? And I will give you a clue. It's related to the film as well. And you've already heard him once today. It's not Bernard Cribbins. No. no Dumb Crambos. Oh, who, yes, who Dumb was reading Crambos. right at the very beginning, John? Who was that? Yes, who was that? Who was reading right at the very beginning? God almighty. This is going to drive me mad. Well, it is Christmas. Oh. No. Any, give Come up. On. Anyone? Anyone want to guess? Lionel Jeffries? It was Lionel Jeffries. Right. You wiped, well you wiped the floor with us. So the three readers there were Jenny Agatha. Dinah Sheridan and Lionel Jeffries. Dinah Sheridan. And Lionel Jeffries. And she and Diana Sheridan is the voice that I grew up with. Nikki, and now I, I know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Nikki, I guessed it was when you <laughs> said because you said to us the other day it was somebody very well spoken. Okay, so 
in runners-up places. <laughs> yeah, fine. Uh, Catherine and John the Dumb Crambos, they scored a very respectable six. But our winners Run on away Christmas winners. Day 2021 with 11 points Bravo. of butter and jam. Well done. Well done. Well done. You win uh, a honeycomb <laughs> and <laughs> a shovel. <laughs> Some gooseberries and a shovel. <laughs> An ounce of peppermint comfort. So before we wrap up, um, is there anything, Catherine, you would like to say about Nesbitt or the railway children that you feel we haven't touched on or you feel is important to say about her here in the 21st century? I don't think so. Only that without her, we wouldn't have Frank Cottrell Boyce. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and without her, we wouldn't have any of the truly, truly great children's writers who are writing right now. She made it possible for those who followed on. And it's amazing to listen to you both speak about her and an inspiration in the way that you do. Frank, is there anything you want to add about her or about the Railway Children? Just thank you. You know, I think she was astonishing. I think she's underestimated. I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to talk about her. Her influence is extraordinary. I think, you know, when you when you read it, you just think, ah, this is there are so many ways to tell a story that you hadn't thought about. And that's true, you know, Catherine Dright of children's writers of my generation, but it's also true of you know, Emir Kostirica making When Father Was Away on Business. You know, her, her influence is everywhere. I think just now we're not wanted there. Not for a few minutes, anyway. I think it would be best for us to go quickly and quietly. We'll go to the end of the field, among the thin gold spikes of grass. We may just take one last look over our shoulders the house where neither we nor anyone else is wanted now. Yep, it's time for us to take one last look over our shoulders at the White House where neither we nor anywhere else are wanted now. But before we do that, we've got to offer our heartfelt, festive thank yous to Catherine and to Frank for yeah. making our Christmas even jollier. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, guys. To Nikki for joining in and keeping an eye on all of us simultaneously. Truly the Ginger Rogers of audio production. <laughs> and finally, to Unbound for laying on the buns. You can download all million previous episodes of this thing, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash batlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear Batlisted episodes early and for roughly the same price as an ounce of Mr. Perks's extra particular. They get not one, but two extra particular lot listed a month. That cosy room where we three sit drinking our supper beer and toasting our supper mm -hmm. cheese at a glowing basket full of coals, talking about books and films and the songs that cheer our spirits. And we'd like to wish all our listeners, patron subscribers, and everyone else, a very, very happy Christmas. And thank you for all your great support this year. And uh, roll on 2022. Mm. May it be positive and, and full of great books for you to enjoy. I'm going to read a poem by E. Nesbitt to go out on called Christmas Roses. The summer roses are all gone, dead, 
laid in shroud of rain-wet mould, and passion's lightning time is done, and love is laid out white and cold. Summer and youth for us are dead, what do old age and winter bring instead? They bring us memories of old years, and Christmas roses, cold and sweet, which, washed by not unhappy tears, I bring and lay beside your feet, with gifts that come with flowers like these. Friendship, remembrance of our past, and peace. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.